Welcome to the Talking Tall Rounds series, brought to you by the Seidel and Arnold Miller Family Heart, Vascular and Thoracic Institute at Cleveland Clinic. Good morning, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to this Tall Rounds that's about lung transplantation, and it's also about celebrating our team doing 2,000 lung transplants, which is an amazing achievement. And based on the numbers, we, in total, we are the biggest lung transplant uh, team uh, in probably the country and the world. Um, that's something that uh, can be confirmed later by Ken. And I suspect with COVID, as much as we struggle with that and wear our masks and everybody's socially distanced in here, we are probably going to see more chronic patients now from COVID also that we're going to have to deal with. And as uh, many of you know, we've already done lung transplants uh, for COVID. This is a great program that everybody's put together, uh, not only over time, uh, Atul Meta and Marie Wurdeff have been very strong partners in the Respiratory Institute with the rest of their team, and uh, Herb Wiedemann also, and uh, Wright Dwyke, and then our surgeons, and Ken really made this program grow. And so this is a great program reviewing the current state of the art in lung transplantation, and uh, we're very proud of what the team has achieved. So with that, I'm going to hand over to Ken. Thank you very much, uh, Lars. Uh, we greatly uh, appreciate the opportunity uh, to present today. Just want to reiterate a, a couple of things. So, I, you know, I think that this program is an outstanding program that's been built on the shoulders of many, many people over the years. We have some outstanding members of our team uh, here this morning to update you uh, on what our program has been doing and what the state of the art uh, for lung transplantation is now uh, in the world. But there are many, many members of the team who are not here today, including our anesthesia colleagues, our respiratory therapists, our nutritionists nutritionists, our nursing staff, and a variety of people, and they're all very integral uh, to our outcomes uh, and to the patients uh, that we offer this life-saving therapy to. Uh, thank you for the uh, privilege. Uh, I'll be talking about uh, the early difficulties in lung transplantation. Uh, lung transplantation as we know it now uh, was really founded on, on the shoulders of a lot of basic science and uh, experimental surgery. Uh, one of the early uh, colorful pioneers was uh, Vladimir Demikov. He was a Russian scientist who attempted single lung transplantation in dogs in 1946. Uh, his transplants ultimately failed from bronchial anastomotic dehiscence. Uh, and this is important because difficulties with the anastomosis would plague uh, clinical lung transplantation for the next uh, 40 years. Uh, James Hardy was an American uh, surgeon who is credited with doing the first uh, human lung transplant uh, in June 1963 at the University of Mississippi. Uh, the patient died from kidney failure and malnutrition after 18 days. Uh, the immunosuppression by today's standards will be considered primitive. Uh, patient got azathioprine, cortisone, and five days of cobalt irradiation. Uh, even though James Hardy was, uh, is noted to be the founder of lung transplantation, he was roundly criticized because his recipient was a prisoner, had central lung cancer, and had lymph node metastasis. Uh, over the next 10 years, there were about 34 attempts at lung transplant around the world. Uh, only one of them, uh, a young man with silicosis who underwent right lung transplant uh, uh, in Belgium in 1968, uh, survived long enough to leave the hospital. He lived 10 months. Most deaths were attributed to respiratory failure. Uh, back then, it was quite difficult to distinguish between pulmonary infection and rejection. 
if you were to summarize the failure of the early experience, it was mostly uh, inadequate immunosuppression, as well as difficulties with the bronchial anastomosis. Uh, however, concurrent developments that were going on at the time in medicine uh, really helps to usher the field forward. And these were things like uh, improvements in ventilatory support and hemodynamic monitoring that made it easier for us to take care of patients in the ICU. Uh, things like imaging of the chest, including CT, and probably more importantly, development of fibrotic bronchoscopy, which enhanced our ability to inspect the airways and conduct transbronchial biopsies for pulmonary pathology. Uh, including uh, post-transplant rejection. Uh, there were 1981-1982 uh, uh, ushered in a, a major uh, development. Uh, Bruce Wright in Stanford uh, performed a, a series of successful heart-lung transplants in patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension and right heart failure. Uh, the group at Stanford ha had a lot going for them. They already had significant heart transplant experience. Uh, this was Norman Shumway's group, and they've been doing heart transplants since 1968. Uh, also, technically, the way this surgery was done was a tracheal anastomosis with much better collateral blood supply from the coronaries. So you did not see the ischemic airway problems that you saw with uh, isolated lung transplants. They also took advantage of the introduction of cyclosporin as an immunosuppressant. Uh, cyclosporin, which was called cyclosporin A, uh, underwent lab evaluation during the 1970s and supplanted a high-dose corticosteroids in the 1980s. Uh, because of that, surgically, there was improved healing and uh, wound strength. The mechanism, as we all recall, is an uh, inhibition of uh, IL-2-driven lymphocyte proliferation. And cyclosporin as a drug really did revolutionize uh, organ transplantation as a field. Uh, after the success of these heart-lung transplants, uh, the success and replication of, of heart-lung transplantation in big, other big centers like Pittsburgh and Papworth uh, led to this being offered not only in patients with pulmonary hypertension, uh, but in patients with emphysema, ILD, and cystic fibrosis, where the cardiac portion of the transplant was physiologically unnecessary. Uh, and that led to things like domino heart transplant uh, procedures where a patient with cystic fibrosis, for instance, would get a heart-lung transplant, and that patient's heart is offered to a patient who needs a, a cardiac allograph, so there's no uh, net loss of organs. Uh, in, in the early 1980s, around 1986, Joe Cooper in Toronto uh, published the first successful single lung transplant for a patient with pulmonary fibrosis. Uh, this recipient was discharged six weeks later, returned to an active lifestyle, and survived for six and a half years, ultimately dying from complications of renal failure. For patients who needed both lungs replaced, patients who had bronchiectasis, cystic fibrosis, uh, the initial approach, which was described by Alec Patterson, who, who was a colleague of Joe Cooper, was a modification of the heart-lung procedure. So this was an unblocked double lung transplant with a tracheal anastomosis. Uh, unlike the combined heart-lung procedure, this was often associated with a significant incidence of uh, fatal airway complications, uh, notwithstanding the use of an omentopexy uh, around the tracheal anastomosis. Uh, however, growing experience and improving survival with the single lung transplant procedure uh, soon made it apparent that the, the way to do bilateral lung transplantation was uh, simply and safely by just replacing the lungs using the single lung transplant technique. So you are basically doing two single lung transplants. 
and the bilateral sequential single lung transplant technique, which with much shorter segment of ischemic donor airway, uh, could be done without cardiopulmonary bypass, and till today remains the standard technique uh, for this procedure. Thank you. Thank you. So I'll uh, briefly discuss sort of another innovative uh, uh, aspect of our program in uh, terms of trying to increase uh, the number of lungs that we have available for uh, patients. So uh, just as a disclosure, I'm a consultant to lung bioengineering, which uh, I'll mention in uh, approach here. So as Femi uh, outlined, this has sort of been a long and arduous course getting to where we could actually clinically uh, uh, do lung transplantation. And one of the things that's made it uh, uh, feasible is, is cold flush uh, and cold storage of lungs. So uh, we go to a donor hospital, uh, we flush the lungs with a cold uh, solution, we take them out, we put them on ice, we store them in a cooler, and we bring them back. Uh, uh, here to be uh, transplanted. And this is how essentially all lung transplant uh, programs do it. So cold is protective. By making it cold, we reduce the metabolism of the lung and, and prevent, hopefully prevent injury. Uh, however, it also hinders active metabolic processes and the opportunity to repair or make alterations in the organ uh, that may uh, uh, prove uh, beneficial. So, in, and this is sort of how things have evolved over the years. So donors are managed at a particular hospital. Uh, uh, someone decides to accept or decline those organs. They go, they procure the organs. Again, they flush it as I described, put it in a cooler on ice, and transplant those organs. So as a result of this approach in the United States, we utilize only 20% uh, of lungs from all the donors uh, that are available. And part of it is um, uh, uh, logistical issues. Uh, uh, that might make it diff difficult to properly evaluate the organ uh, or organs. There may be issues of ischemic time or edematous lungs or infection. Maybe the lungs aren't working well, but maybe there was something that we could do to make them better. So, but 80% of lungs currently go unutilized. And this is a problem because uh, our supply just does not equal our demand. So um, every year in the United States, we perform about 25, now about 25 to 2,700 lung transplants. Uh, for every three to four patients that we transplant, there's one patient that dies on the waiting list. Additionally, over the last 30 years in the United States, about four and a half million people have died of chronic lung diseases. So many of those people are not evaluated for lung transplantation, never listed. And, and uh, we and many other people around the world think that there's an opportunity to be able to utilize more lungs to offer lung transplantation uh, to more patients and prevent them from dying of, of chronic respiratory failure. So, and this is the approach that uh, we've used and certainly others have used as well. University of Toronto uh, group has been, uh, has provided leadership in this to the world, but a number of other people around the world have been uh, engaged in this. And basically the idea is to take lungs that otherwise would not be used uh, and to put them on a machine. Go get them, bring them back, uh, as I described before, put them on a machine uh, that allows us to evaluate those organs uh, or, or uh, potentially to treat them to try to make them better. And that's called ex vivo lung perfusion. So what is that? Uh, this is basically a, a schematic of, of the machine you see on the right. Uh, the lungs are hooked up to this circuit, which has a pump, has a reservoir, has an oxygenator, a leukocyte filter, uh, and a, 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 a heater, a heat exchanger that allows us to warm and cool the circuit. And the lungs are perfused uh, with this solution, a special solution that has a very high oncotic pressure. So it has the ability to potentially draw uh, a water uh, out of the lungs. Uh, and allows us to see the lungs, we can do bronchoscopy, we can do a variety of things uh, to try to 
treat lungs to make them better, to evaluate them, and as I'll mention at the end of the talk uh, briefly, perhaps to do things to personalize those lungs that would uh, result in improved outcome uh, for that particular individual uh, in which those lungs are, are transplanted. And historically, this is uh, uh, what we've done uh, at the clinic. We began this work in our laboratory uh, back in 2000. Uh, we uh, had homemade circuits at the time. Uh, we're taking discarded lungs from our local and surrounding uh, organ procurement organizations and trying to gain experience and do experimental work uh, to, uh, to see what we could do to uh, improve these lungs. In addition, we've had various uh, research protocols and funding uh, looking at uh, uh, this in porcine lungs as well. We began clinically in uh, 2016, meaning using lungs uh, for transplantation with this technique and initially engaged with a company uh, whose uh, idea is to have a, a center where this is done so lungs are shipped there, EVLP is performed, and then they're shipped back, and this is still in the experimental stage, and we're involved in their pivotal trial that's ongoing right now as well, uh, and then began doing it in-house clinically uh, at the beginning of uh, 2018, end of uh, 2017, uh, with uh, our own machine that had, that had been approved uh, by the FDA in the year or two prior to that. And you can see here, I'll draw your attention to the first yellow line on the left. You can see our increasing experience since 2016 in terms of number of lungs uh, that have been uh, 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 transplanted uh, off of an EVLP circuit. So these are lungs that otherwise we would not have been able to, uh, to utilize. And you can see how uh, EVLP is impacting our program in the far right column, uh, where last year in 2019, uh, fully uh, almost 20% of our lung transplants were performed off of the EVLP. So this is 20% of our volume, 20% of patients that we would not have been able to help uh, without this technology. This year, it, it's actually been extremely helpful because in the air arena of COVID, there's been lots of difficulty traveling. Uh, we've had other local procurement surgeons sometimes procure organs for us not knowing whether those lungs would be good or not. We've been using EVLP as a way to assess those organs since we didn't see them prior to them arriving here uh, uh, to be sure that they were going to work well uh, for our patients. So 25% of our volume this year uh, has been uh, with uh, uh, EVLP. And this is our results very quickly. Our 30-day survival has been quite good, 100%. Our one-year survival uh, has been outstanding with uh, uh, transplants that have been performed uh, off of of uh, EVLP. So, and real quickly, so there's still a lot of uh, unknowns uh, with, uh, with this technique. Uh, uh, a lot of unknowns about decision-making, which lungs need to go on EVLP, which don't, uh, uh, how to assess lungs on EVLP, uh, and then there's the whole arena of potentially treating them uh, uh, to make them better. And we've been actively uh, engaged in these uh, innovative and research areas, and just to highlight a few things that, that our team has done, uh, this was looking at obese donors. Uh, with poor lung function that historically have been declined, and we demonstrated that many of those organs uh, can be utilized uh, either directly to transplantation uh, or potentially with uh, EVLP, and this was uh, published a few years ago. Uh, we've uh, examined a variety of uh, biochemical markers while the lungs are on EVLP uh, that help uh, decision making in terms of determining whether those lungs are, are actually good for transplant uh, or not. Um, 
And uh, we've uh, developed an innovative way of evaluating the lungs on EVLP, and this is essentially using ultrasound directly on the lungs, and we termed this clue, uh, this technique, and now we've had uh, two publications in the Journal of Heart-Lung Transplantation, uh, and, and this is a very good technique that allows us to assess uh, extravascular lung water and has a very good uh, correlation uh, with uh, how the lungs uh, perform uh, after uh, lung transplantation, and, and uh, we have a patent and pending uh, uh, with this particular technology. We've developed other strategies as well. Uh, uh, we came up with the idea, uh, uh, translated this from our MICU uh, uh, from years ago in terms of proning patients uh, who have significant uh, lung dysfunction. So we started proning lungs on EVLP, and that's resulted in significant uh, improvement in some lungs uh, uh, by getting rid of extravascular lung water and being able to recruit those lungs and have them perform better. And there's a myriad of potential options here to improve these organs. And these are uh, uh, some things highlighted here that a number of programs around the country uh, are engaged in, gene therapy, um, um, uh, looking at inhibitory mRNA. Dr. Egg Robley at our program is working on his PhD, uh, looking at inhibitory uh, mRNA, and that might be something that could potentially be translated at some point into a, a gene therapy approach. Uh, inhaled gases, utilizing antibiotics to treat lung that are infected while they're on EVLP using uh, antiviral uh, virucidal agents uh, to treat lungs from hepatitis C donors and a variety of other things like that. So uh, again, lots of options here to, to increase the number of lung transplantation, being able to offer this to more patients, and potentially being able to personalize it to decrease rejection, improve long-term outcomes. And these are the people that have been uh, leading this effort. Uh, Dr. Okamoto uh, is the leader of our EVLP program, and Dr. Ayat uh, is the assistant leader. Uh, Ichiro Sakanao is still here, and then Hiro and uh, Daisukai on the right uh, were part of our program when it began and have subsequently left and gone back to Japan. Our respiratory therapists, our perfusionists, a variety of people participate in this. One of the big hurdles to utilizing lungs in the United States is, is, is OPOs, or local organ procurement uh, organizations, actually offering those lungs. And there are lots of logistical, and, or, or at least lungs that are not working well. And there are lots of logistical uh, and even financial hurdles in that regard. So about a year ago, we started this, and, and we brought a lot of leaders from around the country, uh, from various OPOs uh, and, and, and clinical lung transplant programs together here at the clinic to begin a discussion about how we could take those lungs that are not being utilized because they're not good right now and be sure that nearly all of those lungs go on an EVLP circuit to see if, if they're usable. And this is something that we plan uh, to continue uh, on an annual basis uh, beginning again next year. So thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Like what you heard? Visit Tall Rounds online at clevelandclinic.org slash tall rounds and subscribe for free access to more education on the go.